And so I want to read verse 9 again. We've been on this for a couple of weeks, but I'll start here again. It says, As Yeshua went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And so here again, we have the call of Matthew, and we spoke for two weeks about discipleship, and so we won't speak about discipleship today. But let me say that if you weren't here for the teachings on discipleship, then please get those messages because they're key to understanding the book of Matthew. They're also key to understanding the Messianic writings. You need those teachings as we continue because we're going to be referring back to them over and over. Sandwiched between the healings, the oppressed being set free, and the miracles proving Yeshua's Messiahship, In the next few chapters, we get all of these lessons on discipleship and community. The message of Yeshua and the Torah, as I said last week, is all about community. And if you miss that, you miss the message of the Bible. Now, the other thing that makes this call of Matthew so interesting is that Matthew is not a poor man. Tax collectors determined the amount of tax to be collected and then paid Rome or Herod what they asked for and then they kept the rest. They padded it for themselves. And as we're going to see in a moment, after he gets up and leaves his tax collecting booth to follow Yeshua, they go to his house and Matthew throws an impromptu party. And that tells me that Matthew more than likely had some servants and so forth. And so here's Matthew at his very good position, this very good position in life. Yeshua calls him and he leaves his post and he goes on to live an austere and sacrificial life with Yeshua. Also, we know that when Yeshua calls him, it will mean that he's going to have to travel with Yeshua. He's going to travel here, travel there. And so this is kind of a permanent leaving of his work and income to follow the Master as he travels through the land and teaches. Now, if we take this call as the average as the call of an average disciple like you and I, what does it mean for us? Well, I'm not sure that Yeshua expects us that we leave our work to become a disciple, but more than likely what He wants is that we take our discipleship to work in an all we do. What it does mean for sure is that we're not to put anything before Yeshua. And as we saw last week, we're not supposed to put anything before our brothers in Messiah or our community either. And that's the point he's going to make over and over in different ways. There may be some that he does not call to leave his job. But then again, he may require you to change your job. If your job causes you to sin, if your job causes you not to, to, to be able to follow God in the way he outlines in his Torah, then you might have to look for your work elsewhere. Sabbath is a great example of that. If you can't get, if your employer won't give you the Sabbaths off, he won't give you the festivals off, find a new job. I guarantee you, I've never seen it fail that someone who, who prayed and asked God to have the Sabbath off and their employer wouldn't give them that off, they didn't have a, get a better job in the end. Amen? Matthew chapter 9 and verse 10 says this. While Yeshua was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And so Matthew has a dinner for Yeshua and they're eating. As they're eating, other tax collectors come and, and what are called sinners. And they come and they join him at dinner. Luke adds a little something to the narrative. He says in chapter 5 and verse 29, it says, Then Levi had a great banquet for Yeshua at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And so we're told that the dinner was specifically for Yeshua. And so... These tax collectors and sinners were invited by Matthew to this banquet. And Matthew, not being well liked probably by the people of Israel, Amharats, because of his tax collecting duties, they weren't well liked. He has friends who were other tax collectors. And probably, no doubt, he had Herodians as friends as well. And they no doubt compared notes to make sure that these tax collectors probably compared notes to make sure the people were paying their fair share and then some. And Matthew and Mark make the point that there were sinners there as well. And what we can infer from that is that many of Matthew's friends were not Torah observant. They were not keepers of the Torah. They were sinners. And like I said, more than likely he had many friends who were Herodians. It only makes sense that a tax collector at the Galilee would have Herodian connections as he's collecting taxes for Herod. And what makes the collaboration with the Herodians in, in this passage, we see Herodians and Pharisees, and we see this throughout the Gospels, it kind of makes that hard to figure out how these Herodians and Pharisees could be getting along so well together in their pursuit of Yeshua. What else is interesting is this passage is, with this passage is this dubious bunch of visitors. We also have Pharisees within eyeshot, within earshot. And they ask Yeshua's disciples why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. This is not something that a righteous man would do in their opinion. The prevailing halakha of the rabbis was very strict in regard with who you ate with and, and, and where you ate. Sinners, as well as tax collectors, were considered unclean. Sin, of course, renders you unclean. These sinners were those who had forsaken Torah. And more than just Torah, probably the traditions of the rabbis as well, to include all the purity laws. And so eating with an, in an unclean house with unclean people was just something that an observant Jew would not do. And certainly not a rabbi, a teacher. I pulled up this tradition from the Talmud that points this out. It says, our rabbis have antanite authority. There are six things that are not befitting the dignity of a sage. He should not recline at an eating club in the name of ordinary people. So, here we see a, a couple of things here where it says tanite authority. It means, it refers to a sage uh, whose teachings were taught before the first half of the first century. And so this is, this is thought of at the time of Yeshua. This is what was thought. Where it says ordinary people, those are the same as sinners. They're non-observant, ordinary. In rabbinic writings, when you see this word ordinary, it refers to sinners. Well, that's who Yeshua is eating with. And so the Pharisees call his disciples on it. They say this in chapter 12. It says, on hearing this, Yeshua said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Yeshua says that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick. The Messiah didn't come 
to sit at yeshiva and argue over the minutia of the Torah with the other rabbis, but he came to call to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, to gather the lost. In other words, those who had strayed from Torah. Sinners. And I want you to note that he quotes Hosea here. And if you look at Hosea, we find that Hosea was told to go out and take for himself a harlot for a wife. And she was an unfaithful wife. And he lives with an unfaithful life, an unclean wife. He's intimate with her. He prays for her. He waits for her. And this was an example of how Israel had strayed from God, and yet God waits and stayed with Israel, hoping for her to repent, just as Hosea hopes for his wife. Another parallel is at the time of Hosea, they were keeping Torah, but not for the right reasons. And so with this statement, Yeshua is challenging the Pharisees maybe to check their motivations. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They're not eating or associating with sinners for the sake of outward appearance. What is their motivation for not eating with the sinners? Yeshua came for the lost sheep. It's sad to say that was most of Israel. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 says, Then Yeshua's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so here we need to keep the idea of what is a disciple in the first century. This is why I covered this as thoroughly as I could in the last couple of weeks because the question they ask about why your disciples are not fasting is ultimately asking the question, why are you not teaching your disciples to fast? And again, from last week, we arrive at that understanding because in the first century, it was a disciple's job to learn the teachings of the rabbis word for word, his walk through life step by step. So when his disciples were not fasting, it was because the teacher was not fasting. Another possibility here is that they're asking, uh, they're thinking Yeshua had chosen his disciples so poorly that they couldn't even, weren't even capable of grasping a teaching on fasting. So really they're poor disciples, both of which I think Yeshua will address as we read on. Also understand that their fasts, these fasts that he's talking about are not fasts that are required by Torah, like Yom Kippur. That's not the fasts that are referred to here. In the first century, the Pharisees had established additional fasts on certain days of the week. They weren't required by Scripture, but they were done for other reasons. And these fasts were usually on Mondays and Thursdays. And, it, it, and it's one of these fasts in which the disciples aren't fasting. That's what's being talked about here. And Yeshua answers the question of why His disciples aren't fasting. And He uses three parables to teach why His disciples aren't fasting. We'll start with the first one. It says, He says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while He is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. You have to ask yourself, what, what does this have to do with fasting? Well, first, Yeshua equates fasting with mourning. Second, he alludes to the fact that the bridegroom and, and attendants were not required to do certain things during the days of the chuppah or the bridal week while the bridegroom and the, and the bride were together. Listen to what this says from the Mishnah. The Tosefta. It says, The attendants and all the members of the wedding party are exempt from prayer, recitation of the daily prayers, and from donning the tefillim for the entire seven days of the chuppah. And so Yeshua is kind of making the same point. How can they mourn or fast while the bridegroom is among them? 
And why does he call himself the bridegroom? Well, I believe Yeshua is first speaking to why are you teaching your disciples not to fast? He wants them to know that Yeshua is more than just a rabbi. He's more than just John. But he's the one who's come to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's the Messiah. And that's what he's trying to convey here. If you're going to understand why Yeshua teaches his disciples differently, you're going to have to understand that he's different than the sages. He's the prophet like Moses. He's the Messiah. He's the bridegroom of Israel. And also those who've been grafted in. How can you fast when the one who will bring about the restoration of Israel is among you? Yeshua is teaching his disciples a new halakha, a new way of walking, and one that is for the bride and for the bridegroom. And when you understand that he's the prophet like Moses, and he's the son of God and the Messiah, then the understanding of these passages gets pretty easy. This theme of the bride and the bridegroom associated with a new covenant and the Messiah and with the messianic kingdom is nothing new. It's something that Isaiah referred to in chapter 62, verses 1 through 5. It says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, until her salvation, her Yeshua, as a lamp that burns. Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall the land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah and the land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so with this thought of a new covenant being introduced, a new halakha by the Son of God, he continues. Listen to what he says next in verse 16. We covered this briefly last week. No one sews a new patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Okay, so we covered this briefly last week. But in this parable, it will help us to understand it, to first remember our context here and to identify the elements of the parable. The unshrunk piece of cloth is the way Yeshua is teaching his disciples. It's this new teaching that Yeshua is bringing to his disciples. A new teaching. And his disciples are men who were not Torah scholars. Remember, we talked about it last week. They're not educated in the traditions of the rabbis. They're fishermen, tax collectors. Pharisees won't even eat with them. And they were more than likely chosen for that very reason. I alluded to this a little bit last week. When I came to the Lord, I didn't have any religious training. I was like a blank slate in that regard. I had no teachings in the church to rid myself of. Much the same way the disciples were. Scripture says, teach a child the way he shall go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. And the reason is easier. We talked about it last week. It's easy to write on a blank slate. It's hard to write on a piece of paper that's all scribbled over got all kinds of notes on it right and as i alluded to last week you know when i came to the lord i didn't have any religious training and that's 
the new patch is this new teaching that Yeshua is bringing forth. This new teaching on the hearts of these clean slates. Yeshua didn't gather those who were well-versed in traditional Judaism for His disciples for this reason. Traditional Judaism is the old garment that's being spoken of here. And that old garment won't hold this new patch. The new teachings of Yeshua and this old garment are not compatible. And we see this in all the confrontations Yeshua has with the Pharisees. Verse 17 says this, Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are are preserved. The new teachings of Yeshua are the wine. They can't be contained within the confines of traditional Judaism. He's bringing forth a new halakha and teaching to his disciples. And it'll be a new way of walking. And you know, we should have seen we should see that we should have seen that on in, in the Sermon on the Mount. The old compromises of Torah, the old traditions of men regarding Torah are not going to hold the teachings of Yeshua. Yeshua heals on the Sabbath, tells men to pick up their mat and go forth on the Sabbath. You see, it's not compatible with the traditional teachings. Something has to give. And Yeshua chose untrained men for His disciples to pour His new teachings in, His new halakha in. And back to my testimony for a little bit. I know that I picked up Hebrew thought much quicker than most because it was a lot easier to teach someone who hadn't had a lot of previous notions. What you get when you teach someone who's been steeped in traditions is they try to hang on to the old and incorporate the new. Blend the new with the old, like sewing a new patch on an old garment. If you try to pour a new teaching into old students, you have to undo the old teachings. And that's not always easy. If the person is not convinced what he's been taught is wrong, then it's not easy at all. It's like pouring new wine into an old wineskin. Very rigid. Oftentimes people become so confused that they're actually worse off in the end, just like the old garment is ruined or the wineskin is ruined. You know, while I'm not big on Mishnah and Talmud, I have to admit that there's a lot of wisdom in there. When you read it, you, you find a lot of wise things in there. Many times, they're the same things Yeshua taught. In this, in this regard, the Talmud declares, get yourself a teacher and get dusty in the dust of his feet. In other words, it's a whole lot easier to teach someone who's not already filled with contrary things or listening to things that run contrary to what the teacher's teaching. What happens is, The student is destroyed. I want you to get this into your understanding today. You can't listen to things and not have them remain a part of you. Everything you listen, everything you listen to, everything you read in your life leaves a deposit in you. Some way, shape, or form. And if you're listening to contrary things, you can't help but be worse off in the end. You're going to get confused. Yeshua's recommendation to us and to teachers is 
Take your new teachings and give them to brand new students or those who will give up the old. Not those who are steeped in or unwilling to give up old traditions. Not those who are not willing to listen or who, who are listening to a half a dozen different teachers. If you do that, it's like pouring new wine into an old wineskin. If you pour your teachings into new students or students ready to listen, then when you're finished, you have a student who has a solid, systematic belief system. And that's what Yeshua came to do, to make disciples who are rock solid in His new covenant, who will carry on this new teaching and go out and make more new disciples. I said this last week, you know, sometimes I warn people about teachers who teach things contrary to what's taught here. And sometimes people get the wrong idea about why I do that. But you get the same result. You get confused people. And sooner or later, like the wineskin, they're ruined. People who listen to a multitude of teachers who teach contradictory things end up with no systematic theology, no systematic thought. Not only that, as I alluded to last week, eventually it can take you out of the community. And that's the essence of Torah. It's the essence of the new covenant. It's community. Let me give you an example. In our statement of faith, we have a statement that says we don't believe those who are of the sacred name movement. And I'm not talking about those who use the sacred name once in a while, use it carefully, but I'm talking about the movement. Those who say that if you don't say the name Yahshua or Yahweh, you're a heretic and you're in danger of being damned. What is the fruit of this teaching? Well, in the years I've been in this community, it's taken no less than eight people out of here. I don't even know all, probably. It's divided families. We have half families coming here because of this very teaching. Because the other half stays home. Because they don't want to hear the word Lord or God instead of the sacred name. In their zeal, For the sacred name, they miss the very thing the one who bears that name tried to teach them. And again, that's community. They miss the fact that God calls His Sabbath Mikra Kodesh. In English, sacred assemblies. We're commanded to gather together on the Sabbath. And so, the reason I warn people is that this teaching is divisive. It takes people out of community. Let me ask you something. What kind of a shepherd would I be if I didn't warn people if I saw them walking into danger? You see, the reason I warn people is how do you expect to be one with this community if you're purposely listening to teachers who teach things contrary to the teachings of this community? Don't you see that sooner or later it'll take you out? I mean, or at least at bare minimum leave you double-minded. Don't be double-minded. Well, that's what Yeshua is saying here. You cannot take someone steeped in the teachings of the rabbis and put a patch on them. Yeshua says the same thing in other ways. You can't have to, you can't serve money and God both. You can't serve the rabbis and Messiah Yeshua both. You can't serve in this community and in another. These things make you double-minded. 
Now with that in mind, let's look at some examples of what I'm saying here. Listen to what Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 through 8 says. On the Sabbath, Yeshua was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, what they're doing is unlawful on the Sabbath. And so here the disciples are going through the grain fields and they pick some grain for their own consumption. And the Pharisees who see this say, Hey, this is work. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful, what is work on the Sabbath. They're violating the Sabbath. And by questioning Yeshua as to why his disciples are violating the Sabbath, they're calling him into question as well, since his disciples are to be copies of their rabbi. It stands that they're only doing what they've seen their rabbi do, what they've seen Yeshua do. So Yeshua gives them a personal response. He says, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry in the days of Abathar, the high priest? He entered into the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is only lawful for the priest to eat. He also gave some to his companions. And so the question here is, what does this have to do with picking grains, heads of grain on the Sabbath? Well, it just so happens that this incident happened on the Sabbath. Because the bread of the faces was taken down and replaced on the Sabbath. And the bread was taken down and given to the priest to eat within the confines of the temple. David took that bread that was made for the priesthood and gave it to his men. And so Yeshua uses the Bible and David to argue for himself and his disciples. And you might think, well, this isn't exactly apples for apples, or but is it? And yes, it is. Because in the story we have David... And in the incident with Yeshua, we have the son of David, the Messiah. And in both stories, they each have some hungry men with them. Men following David are hungry. And in this narrative, we have Messiah, son of David, feeding his hungry followers as well. Yeshua's new halakha, his new approach to the Sabbath, is the same as I try to convey to those who ask me about the Sabbath. You have to understand the value of the Sabbath. You first have to understand that it's not law, though it has laws associated with it. It wasn't given as law. It was given to Israel as a free gift. They had just come out of slavery in Egypt and God said, take a day of rest and I'm going to give you everything you need to rest on that day. And so the day before, he gives them a double portion of manna. For the Sabbath. He's saying, I just want you to rest. I'll give you bread and rejoice in the gift that I've given you. You see, it's God's intention that we rest on the Sabbath, that we delight in the Sabbath. Do good on the Sabbath. Focus on Him on the Sabbath. Rejoice and be content on the Sabbath. And if that means picking an apple or picking some grain because you're hungry, that's allowed. It goes on to say, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Yeshua is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, you have to remember, the Sabbath was in the heart of God at creation. He made the earth in six days and man on the sixth day. And he rested on the Sabbath. He made the whole of the amount of time of creation as well, the same way, 6,000 years for work. And then a seventh millennium, a time of rest, the day of the Lord. And Yeshua is Lord of that day. 
Since God rested on the seventh day and his work was complete, it follows that he's still resting. A point that the writer of Hebrews makes. And he also makes the point that if you put your trust in God, in Yeshua, you can rest today as well. That means each of the six days we work and the Sabbath that we rest, every time we do that, we affirm the work of God, the work of Yeshua, and that Yeshua is Lord of the Sabbath day. And that he's going to rule on the earth on the Sabbath day. And that we no longer have to strive in life. We no longer have to strive as the rabbis dictate. But we can rest. And we can follow the Spirit to guide and direct us into all righteousness. Amen? That's the new wine. And it doesn't fit into the rigid confines of traditional Judaism. Neither does resting in Yeshua have anything to do with the heavy load that traditional Judaism had become. Neither will the communities of Yeshua, those he's training his disciples to go forth and to make and to teach and develop, they will not be contained within the rigid confines of Judaism either. Judaism's teachings on purity, the Sabbath, entrance into the kingdom of God will not take the flood from the nations that's about to be poured into it. It will take new wineskins, or at least a wineskin that has been refurbished and oiled and made pliable again to contain what God is about to do through the redemptive work of Yeshua. He's about to bring His community, His kehilat that we talked about last week. And that's why, if we back up just a few verses from there, Yeshua says this, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whom those the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We find rest for our souls That's the new wine. And it won't fit into the burdensome confines of Judaism. The yoke in the verse is Yeshua's way of walking through life, walking out the commands of God, learning from and listening to the voice within you. And if you do that, you will find rest because His burden is light. You no longer need the rabbis to teach you what to eat, what to drink, because Yeshua abides within you. Do we still need teachers? Well, of course we do. That's why we read last week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. It's those teachings that keep the congregation, the community on the same page, bound together. Amen?